Welcome to the Science in the City podcast. I'm your host, David Hoffman. There's clearly a huge problem with obesity in the United States. According to figures released by the Centers for Disease Control in January of this year, nearly 36% of all adults in the United States could be counted as obese in 2009 and 2010. And there are strong and conclusively demonstrated links between obesity and all kinds of serious health problems, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, so much so that many physicians and researchers lump all of these diseases together with obesity into a single condition called metabolic syndrome. Today, in a special episode co-sponsored by the Josiah Macy Jr. Foundation and the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science, we're going to talk about how new research seems to show a strong connection between obesity and another disease, cancer. To get there, we're going to need to start by understanding a little bit about what cancer actually is. To help explain, here's Dr. Lewis Cantley, professor of systems biology at Harvard Medical School and director of cancer research at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. Cancer happens by accidents that allow genes that weren't normally expressed in the tissue to now suddenly become expressed. And so now that cell acquires the ability to grow an environment where it's not intended to grow. An interesting thing is that the ability to grow and divide is usually the measure of a healthy cell, not a sick one. That innate ability to be possible to go into a growth state needs to be around throughout life so that you can repair wounds, for example. But once those cells begin to ignore the normal constraints, they now become cancer cells. This means that cancer doesn't work the way we might think diseases should work. Think of your body not as a single indivisible unit, but rather as a close-knit community of individual cells. Cells that could, in theory, function just like the amoebas and paramecia you might have studied in high school biology, swimming around on their own, functioning as independent organisms. The cells that make up you, though, have been programmed by their DNA to come together to form tissues, that in turn form organs that are then interconnected into that marvelously complex biological machine that we call the human body. There's an evolutionary advantage to each cell for doing this, of course. A human being has survival and reproductive strategies that no amoeba could ever hope to imitate. But this agreement has a flip side. The individual component cells are often sacrificed for the benefit of the collective old or malfunctioning cells, or cells that are doing a job that your body no longer needs done, are disposed of thousands of times every day, and new cells are constantly created to take their place. It's not surprising then, with all that cell division and reproduction, that small mutations in the DNA of your individual cells happen all the time, and that many of these mutations encourage the affected cell to disregard the limits placed on its growth for the good of the collective. You know, <laughs> I, I like to use an analogy between uh, capitalism and communism. So our, our body is a communistic state, right? Every single tissue is pre-programmed to do exactly what it's supposed to do. And there's a blueprint at the time of birth as to how big every tissue is going to get and how they're all going to talk to each other in a way that's, that's absolutely predetermined. And cancer is like capitalism. A given cell says, the hell with the system. I'm going to go off and grow on my own and ignore all the normal constraints. And of course, we know that communism typically doesn't survive more than about 60 years before capitalism breaks out. So it's you know, pretty much the same thing for cancer, that even though we have 
a number of mechanisms to try to suppress cancer. As soon as a cell figures out a way to ignore those constraints, then it is setting off on its way to becoming a cancer cell. And of course, there's always selection. Any, anything that grows better than its neighbor is going to win. And the more copies it makes of itself, the more chance that they're going to mutate and have even additional advantages until you have something that can survive almost anywhere in your body, in which case you have an inoperable metastatic cancer. So a cancerous tumor is not cells in your body getting weak and functioning poorly and dying. It's cells getting strong and thriving to the detriment of their neighbors. You might say that cancer is the condition of certain parts of your body being too healthy in relation to the whole. Thankfully, most of these mutations are a dead end and don't leave the affected cell the wherewithal to grow and survive at the expense of its neighbors. Here's Dr. Clifford Huddis, Chief of Breast Cancer Medicine at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center here in New York. Most mutated cells are self-lethal. In an exponential fashion, almost every time you damage the DNA of a cell, the cell just goes into suicide mode and kills itself. It's a rare mutational event that's survivable for the cell, such that it can grow like a cancer. So you go out in the sun, you get UV exposure to the surface of your arm for 15 minutes, it causes tons of single and double-stranded DNA breaks, and all those cells kill themselves, as they should because they've been irretrievably damaged. But maybe once, when you're in your 40s, one time, the specific DNA break that's introduced turns out not to be lethal. It actually turns out to be survivable by the cell. And that cell grows and divides and grows and divides. And two years later, you have a little speck there, and it's a malignant melanoma. As bad as the odds are for any one of these mutated cells, the divisions happen so often that eventually, if we live long enough we all carry viable cells that have mutated in this way and thrown off the genetic constraints on their growth. Probably everyone, by the time they're 55 years old, have little micro cancers all over their body, things that are too small to detect in any uh, imaging event. In fact, we know from looking at autopsies of you know, car accidents that you see little micro uh, tumors all over the place. And uh, the question is, why doesn't, if everybody has these, why doesn't everybody get cancer? And the answer is most of them are quite limiting, and they're growing very slowly and ultimately reach some stage at which they, they can't grow any further without better vascularization or something. They just come to a halt unless some other event happens. In other words, to make you sick, these renegade cells don't just need the genetic mutation that gives them the will to go rogue. They also need some change in their environment that triggers their ability to thrive and reproduce. This is where we come to obesity, a condition that can change your internal environment in a lot of fundamental ways. Several of the most important of these changes involve hormones, which are the chemicals your body uses to regulate its internal functions. Let's start with one of the most famous and important of these hormones, estrogen. Here's Dr. Huddis again. Women need estrogen in an ongoing and cyclical fashion so that they are fertile and able to bear children. Estrogen helps to build up the, the uterine lining so that they can carry a fertilized egg to maturity. We use estrogen, both men and women, for lots of other things. Estrogen makes strong bones, for example. 
That's why after menopause, women have an accelerating problem with osteoporosis. Their estrogen levels fall. We can treat osteoporosis with estrogen, for example. Having an excess of estrogen, though, particularly after menopause, when most women's estrogen production drops off, can also support the growth of breast cancer. The most common kind of breast cancer in the West is a kind of breast cancer where the cells themselves have the estrogen receptor in them. And the estrogen receptor is essentially a socket into which estrogen attaches or binds. So these cancers that are the most common kinds of breast cancers are driven by estrogen. And the risk factors for breast cancer are to some degree linked to having excess estrogen compared to others, women, not men. Older, obese women have more estrogen than thin women. So if you have a transformational event, if quietly one cell in a duct in the breast becomes malignant and has the estrogen receptor, in the presence of a higher estrogen environment, it will grow and divide and thrive better than it would in a low estrogen environment. And how does obesity cause this increase in estrogen production? One of the mechanisms of that increase is clear and well-documented. And it was discovered through studying something that might seem totally unrelated. Pain medication. Specifically, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents are drugs like Motrin and Advil. Those are the brand names for ibuprofen. What they do is that they shut off an enzyme that's critically important in the generation of inflammatory mediators in tissues all around the body. So you take an aspirin, inflammation goes down. Well, when people take aspirin chronically, there's been some epidemiological evidence that they reduce their risks of some kinds of cancer. Notably, hormone receptor positive postmenopausal breast cancer and bowel cancer. Maybe three years ago, we began to do an experiment in animals uh, where we manipulated the diet that the animals were fed and what we were looking for was an impact based upon the diet on cancer risk. So what we demonstrated was not so much that we could see a difference in the development of cancer, but interestingly, our mice that were being fed a high-fat diet as opposed to a low-fat diet had not only increased weight, no surprise, but they had an inflammatory focus in the white fat tissue of their mammary glands. This inflammation is a function of that normal system of destruction and rebirth of cells that we talked about earlier. The lesion that we're seeing in the fat is a fat cell which has decided to die because it's too big. That's a normal thing. It's called adipocytosis. And this dying fat cell has to be eaten up. It doesn't just sit there dead. So your body has a kind of cleanup crew. And the cleanup crew are the macrophages. So as the adipocyte dies, it or any other cell sends out chemical signals saying, come and get me. And in come these macrophages. And they in turn want to get the job done quickly. So they generate more inflammatory chemicals to bring in more inflammatory cells to clean this mess up. It's like a five-alarm fire. In this case, though, there's an interesting side effect, a kind of chain reaction of chemical signals that affects the DNA of the surrounding cells. The cascade of signals, it turns out, activates 
a gene called aromatase. And aromatase is the controlling enzyme that generates estrogen. We don't yet know the function of this connection between the adipocytosis of these inflamed fat cells, which are called crown-like structures, and estrogen production. But we do know that the connection exists. And we know that the increased level of estrogen it produces at least partially explains both the increase in breast cancer found among overweight people and the decrease in people regularly taking ibuprofen. Maybe it's an accident of, of evolution. Maybe it's an, who knows why it's true. I can't make up that story yet. But it's a fact that when you get this inflammatory lesion, you can read the level of inflammation by looking at the activity of aromatase. And a consequence of more aromatase is more estrogen. Another proof of this hypothesis was found accidentally. For many years, supplemental estrogen had been commonly prescribed to help women cope with the unpleasant effects of menopause. When new experimental data led doctors to prescribe estrogen replacement much less frequently, coincidentally, breast cancer rates dropped. 2003, we learned for the first time that most of the benefits of supplemental estrogens for menopause were not real. And in the months after that was discovered and reported, there was a plunge in the prescription writing for hormone replacement therapy for postmenopausal women. And within months of that, there was a plunge in the incidence of estrogen receptor positive postmenopausal breast cancer. It's a beautiful set of public health experiments, inadvertently done. Research has shown many other connections between obesity and cancer also. Another of the most compelling connections also leads us down the path of questioning a popular hormone therapy for a very prevalent disease. In this case, the disease most commonly associated with obesity, the centerpiece of metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes. That hormone, of course, is insulin. Insulin is the hormone that tells the cells in your body how to metabolize sugars, also known as carbohydrates. Not just what we think of as sweets, which are sweet because they contain a carbohydrate called fructose, but also all kinds of starchy foods, bread, pasta, root vegetables, that contain a carbohydrate called glucose. For an in-depth explanation of different kinds of carbohydrates and how they're metabolized in our body, tune into the next Science in the City podcast for episode three of our A Thought for Food series. But for now, suffice it to say that glucose is an extremely important nutrient maybe the most important. It's what our body burns to make energy that keeps us running. And without a steady stream of it, our brains, among other things, would stop functioning altogether. Insulin is the agent that orchestrates a complex storage system that controls this steady stream of glucose to the various places it's needed throughout the body. Here's Dr. Cantley again. When you eat any kind of carbohydrate, the level of glucose and or fructose in your blood goes up. And that when it reaches the pancreas, tells the pancreas to secrete insulin. The insulin then goes off to various tissues, fat, the liver, and muscle. And in the case of fat and muscle, the insulin tells those tissues to take up the glucose. Now, if it gets taken up into the muscle, it's primarily used as an energy source. If it goes to the fat, since the fat is not really contracting like the muscle is, most of it goes to long-term storage that your body needs in the event of starvation. You finally find yourself lacking food for several weeks. You can live on that. In America, people very seldom go without food, so we tend to just continually accumulate it throughout our lives. 
that continued accumulation of body fat that never gets used is the very definition of obesity. Getting back to insulin, though, sometimes people are born with or develop a condition where they can't produce enough insulin and therefore can't metabolize the sugars they're ingesting. This is called diabetes. There are two major types of diabetes. There's juvenile diabetes, also called type 1 diabetes, and then there's type 2 diabetes. And they're completely different diseases, although they both can be diagnosed with high levels of glucose in the urine. The type 1 diabetes is a consequence of the failure of the pancreas islet cells to make insulin. While there can be other causes, type 1 diabetes is usually genetic and develops in children. It's thought of as an autoimmune disease where the immune system attacks those cells and kills them. And children who have this disease, if they are not treated with insulin, cannot instruct muscle and fat to take up uh, glucose. Type 2 diabetes is different. It's caused by a once healthy pancreas being gradually overworked. The islet cells become exhausted. They, they have exceeded their capacity to uh, generate enough insulin and sometimes they actually start to die or, it's, or certainly are, are, are losing the, the amount of insulin they need to keep glucose under control exceeds their capacity to make insulin. The part of this process that most strongly connects to cancer, though, happens just before actual type 2 diabetes kicks in. Type 2 diabetes is generally preceded by a period of insulin resistance. So your, your islet cells are healthy and they're making plenty of insulin. But the tissues, the peripheral tissues, the muscle fat and the liver, uh, are, are not responding to the insulin. We don't fully understand all the reasons why this resistance happens, but it generally happens in people who are obese. Initially, what will happen if, if those tissues are not responsive to insulin is that the islet cells will just make more insulin because they'll sense that there's more and more glucose in the blood and they'll dump out more and more insulin and they'll bring the glucose back to homeostasis, but the insulin levels required to come back to that homeostasis may be 10, 20, 50-fold, 100-fold higher than you would find in, in a normal individual. The connection is that researchers have now discovered that many common types of cancer, including colon, ovarian, and endometrial cancers, respond in the same way to this flood of insulin that the breast cancer we talked about earlier responds to estrogen. It's the supporting agent that the microtumors need to grow into full-fledged cancer. There's a complication here for people with diabetes and their doctors. As with prescribing estrogen replacement in menopause, a common treatment for type 2 diabetes is injections of insulin. And if an insulin-responding cancer did develop in your body during that pre-diabetic period of insulin resistance, it might still be too small to detect, particularly if you're not looking for it. And those injections might very possibly feed it more and help it grow faster. That might very well mean that it's important for doctors and patients to be choosing other forms of treatment. In early stages of insulin resistance, the high levels of insulin are keeping glucose normal. So you go to your doctor and ask, do I have diabetes? And it's, no, your glucose levels, we're not seeing glucose in the urine. Glucose levels look fine, but the tumor is feeding off of that very high insulin. So I think there's no harm with pushing that message even more strongly to the endocrinologist because they're not typically thinking about cancer. Their job is to, to keep the glucose levels low and they don't worry so much about whether the insulin is high. Things get really tricky, though, because all of this is a game of percentages. 
when we talk about associations, and this is always hard for the lay population, we're talking about modest increases in risk associated with a factor like obesity. But most obese people won't get the disease that we're talking about, and lots of people will still get it who don't have the risk factor. Even a 50% increase in risk, which sounds enormous, could really mean only a small increase for a single individual. Take a disease where there's 1% risk of the disease per year. A 50% increase means that the risk goes to 1.5%. So that means that for the whole population of 100, there's a barely perceptible difference, actually, in the risk. That an individual was never likely to get the disease that we're talking about either way. And still the 50% risk was there because the risk went from up from 1% to 1.5%. Let's put this into real numbers. Information about a clinical study published on the National Cancer Institute website shows an increased risk of breast cancer death of 100% for postmenopausal women taking estrogen replacement therapy versus women taking a placebo. But that 100% increase is from 1.3 cases per 10,000 women to 2.6 cases per 10,000. Now, this is still a significant increase and not to be taken lightly, but it does complicate a physician's decision whether or not to treat menopausal symptoms with estrogen or diabetes with insulin injections. There might very well be cases where the beneficial effect of hormone therapy outweighs the increased chance of cancer. It also seems clear to most people doing research in this field, though, that there is still much to be discovered. And there are very likely connections between obesity and cancer that we haven't observed yet. It's possible that aromatase could function as a marker, an indicator of the amount of inflammation without having to be functional. Meaning, you may make more estrogen here, but who cares? May not, that may not relate to the pathophysiology of the situation. Let, let's imagine for a minute that this inflammatory focus has five main effects, hypothetically. And so far in 2012, we've nailed one of them, which is aromatase and estrogen production. But let's just say for a moment that there are four other big effects not well understood right now. So in breast cancer, we're able to say, look, aromatase is up. That provides a nifty link to a problem we know about, estrogen-driven hormone receptor positive postmenopausal breast cancer. Nice, tight story. But let's just imagine for a moment that we've got an obese man and the disease we're talking about is colon cancer. I have a hard time saying that the output of that inflammation, aromatase, relates to the colon cancer, right? But maybe two or three or one, whatever, of the other less well understood consequences of this inflammation are the reason for the colon cancer. But I can still read the aromatase level as an indicator of the inflammation. That's all I'm saying. One of the most interesting hypotheses that still need to be further explored is that the risks that increase when you become obese are the same risks that increase when you age. So getting heavier might equate to getting older. The rates of certain cancers that are typically associated with aging seem to rise with obesity. And so one could begin to imagine experiments to look at the t traditional signs and sequelae of aging and see if they associate with obesity. So what's the moral of this story? While our story is narrowly about cancer, 
the truth is, that might be the 12th reason that you want to be thin. Because long before you get to your elevated cancer risk, you've already got coronary disease, diabetes, hypertension, and uh, osteoarthritis, and so on. I mean, there are a lot of really good reasons to not want to be overweight. Glucose intolerance. I mean, these are all bad things that are much more prevalent than breast cancer. It's just that breast cancer is marching in the same direction in terms of risk. So what this means, though, and the reason you know for focusing on this is the following. If it's true that the population is getting more and more obese, and it is true, and if it's true that this will link over time to an societal mini-crisis, which is to say an increase in the incidence of at least one, if not several, kinds of cancer, then the next question for us comes, well, what can we do about it? Well, the easy answer is stay thin, except that's not so easy to accomplish. Or diet people because we now know why they should be thin and hope that this motivates them. I'm not so optimistic about that. People know they should be thin already. So anyway, if we can't behaviorally get people to change, and I'm pretty pessimistic about that, frankly, uh, then the next question becomes, will we be able to, will we want to develop safe pharmacologic means of reversing this effect? And that brings us full circle back to the anti-inflammatory drugs. If the story is that the breast cancer risk in obesity is mediated by inflammatory activity, then we may be back to asking the simple question in the population, can a specific anti-inflammatory approach fix things? Special thanks to our experts in this episode, Dr. Lewis Cantley and Dr. Clifford Huddis. This podcast is presented as part of the Translational Medicine Initiative, a partnership between the New York Academy of Sciences and the Josiah Macy Jr. Foundation to foster the translation of basic science discoveries into improved clinical health care. It was a co-production of the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science and Science and the City, not-for-profit programs of the New York Academy of Sciences. Visit them on the web at nyas.org transmed, nyas.org nutrition, and scienceandthecity.org.